There's a psychiatric disorder called Jerusalem Syndrome. It's not what I assumed it to be, which is that particular mix of rage and amusement that comes from trying to take a cab in Jerusalem. Like the time I got picked up outside the old city, and when I told the cabbie which hotel I was staying in, he said he didn't feel like driving over there, and then offered me other places he'd rather go. Or the driver who threatened to kick me out when I told him that I was just visiting Israel, not planning to move there, and he said he wasn't interested in wasting his time with Jews who didn't love their people. But anyway, no. The idea behind Jerusalem Syndrome is that you take a mild-mannered, thoroughly secular dentist from Ohio on a visit to Jerusalem and he is suddenly and deeply afflicted with fantastical religious delusions, like that he is the Messiah or is on a special mission from God, or becomes otherwise psychotically obsessed with the religious culture of Jerusalem. It usually goes away when you have him sit in traffic for a couple hours, and it's not particular to Judaism. Christians and Muslims have been known to get it. The point is, why Jerusalem? How did Jerusalem end up as the most important city in Judaism? We're deep into the season, and the Israelites have been around for a few hundred years at this point, and we've barely mentioned Jerusalem. I briefly talked about the city under its Canaanite chief, Abdi Hepa, who begged the pharaoh Amenhotep for military assistance. For all this time, Jerusalem has been a small Canaanite town up in the mountains, out in the boonies, if you will. It didn't even make it onto the list of cities that the Israelites claimed to have conquered. According to the Hebrew Bible, the local inhabitants of the city were known as the Jebusites. The Canaanite chief Abdi Hepa ruled in the 1300s BCE. He called the city Jerusalem, which was a reference to the Canaanite god Shalem, the god of dusk. Jerusalem is just the English translation of the Hebrew word for Jerusalem, Yerushalayim. It's ironic that both Israel and Jerusalem are named after Canaanite gods. It's like finding out that Washington, D.C. is named after the King of England. But anyway, so how did Jerusalem go from a backwater Canaanite town to the essential city of Judaism? The short answer is King David. The longer answer is the rest of this episode. I'm your host, Jason Harris, and welcome back to Jew Ought to Know. I would say to young people that we can do everyone our share to redeem the world. When we left off David last time, he had just been crowned king. Scholars date this to about 1005 BCE. The Hebrew Bible tells us that the first king, Saul, was killed in battle along with most of his sons. The surviving son who inherited Saul's throne was soon assassinated by men loyal to David. Now David had already been crowned king of his own territory, the kingdom of Judah, which was the southern half of the Israelite kingdom. In today's world, we're talking about the southern part of the West Bank, down into the Negev Desert and out to the Dead Sea. Judah was made up of two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, and David was from the tribe of Judah. With the death of Saul's dynasty, David also becomes king of the northern territory, called the Kingdom of Israel. That would be the northern half of the West Bank and northern Israel today, around the Sea of Galilee. The Kingdom of Israel was made up of ten different tribes. So in the south, we have the Kingdom of Judah, made up of the tribes of Benjamin and Judah. And in the north, we have the Kingdom of Israel, made up of, of ten separate tribes. With the joining of the two Israelite territories, we get what's called the United Monarchy. 
The Hebrew Bible tells us that the United Monarchy was a mighty superpower, a large and powerful kingdom with great influence, an unbeatable military, phenomenal leadership, and of course, God on its side every step of the way. But we'll come back to that. In the meantime, the new King David had a political problem on his hands. His capital city, the capital of the kingdom of Judah, is Hebron, which is located in the south. Hebron today is a mostly Palestinian city in the West Bank, and it's where the matriarchs and patriarchs are buried. Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, and Rebekah, Jacob, and Leah. The problem with Hebron is that it was too far away from the northern Israelites. Geographically, because it was a long distance to travel, but also politically, because it was deep in southern Israelite territory, and the northerners worried that it would give the southerners too much influence. So David needed a good compromise capital. Jerusalem, a tiny Canaanite town, was situated almost exactly in between the kingdoms of Israel and Judah. Technically, it was in Judah, part of the territory of the tribe of Benjamin. But Jerusalem wasn't an Israelite city. It belonged to the Jebusites, and it was therefore neutral. And that made it a very attractive compromise. The problem is that it was also very well defended. David was itching to be the first in a very long line of conquerors of what was about to become the great holy city. It took several centuries for Jerusalem to acquire the status of the great Jewish holy city, a process that began with the United Monarchy and then was expanded by the Israelite prophets. But even though the Hebrew Bible provides the answer of why Jerusalem was so important, we still have the historical reckoning. Why Jerusalem? The historian Karen Armstrong writes about the idea of sacred geography. The idea is that certain places are felt to be closer to the gods than others. For example, she writes that mountains were often a focus of this sense of transcendence. On their summits, midway between heaven and earth, people felt that they had risen above their earthly concerns and had come halfway to meet their gods. Sacred geography can be associated with anything that stood out dramatically from its surroundings, like a particular rock or a waterfall or even just any place that a particular god was said to have appeared. Karen Armstrong writes that such sites are sacred to us because they are inextricably bound up with our conception with ourselves. They may be associated with the profound experience that transformed our lives, with memories of early childhood, or with a person who was important to us. Associating a particular place with the divine was a way for humans to, she says, express the mystery that they experienced in the world. Armstrong writes that historians consider this kind of spiritual attachment to a particular place one of the most ancient and most universal aspects of religion. It's less about actual geography than about the inner spiritual self. Sacred geography harkens back to a time when humans lived in harmony with nature, she writes, with both one another and the gods. This place, then, because it's associated as the spot where the divine was revealed to us, it becomes the center of the earth. So let's imagine something. We know that people were coming to the spot that is now Jerusalem as long as 6,000 years ago. What did people find here that might fall under the criteria of sacred geography? Well, they found a mountain, and they found a water source. 
Both were created by the geologic forces I described in the first episode of this season, the millions of years of tectonic upheaval that pushed up the mountain range in which Jerusalem sits. The water source we call today the Gihon Spring, and it must have seemed a wonder back in ancient times, a continuously flowing source of fresh, cold water protected inside a deep well. Sloping up several hundred yards from the Gihon Spring was a steep mountain ridge that culminated at a summit where there was a gigantic rock the size of a couple fire engines. We can't know much more than that, however, because these ancient people, of course, didn't leave any texts. They didn't yet have writing to record their thoughts. Perhaps it was the life-giving aspect of the water source that seemed transcendent, or perhaps they believed that a god stood upon the summit rock and controlled the spring that flowed from inside the mountain. The Gihon Spring is still around today, but we've lost much of the shape of the mountain underneath the city of Jerusalem. But that rock at the summit of the mountain, we still have. It sits underneath the dome of the rock in Jerusalem's old city. It's the stone considered by Jews, Christians, and Muslims to be the foundational piece of the world, the throne of God's presence here on earth. So perhaps from time immemorial, humans associated this place with the sacred. And as Karen Armstrong writes, once a place has been experienced as sacred in some way and has proved capable of giving people access to the divine, Worshippers have devoted a great deal of creative energy to helping others to cultivate this sense of transcendence. Perhaps over the millennia, this idea of the sacredness of this spot was passed down generation to generation, until it ended up with the Canaanites who built out the city they called Jerusalem, the place of the Canaanite dust god Shalem. Perhaps the Canaanites came by the belief that Shalem had once visited this spot, which is why it was invested with a sacred aura. What I'm telling you is that Jerusalem's association with the sacred and the divine began long before the Israelites got there. Remember, the Israelites came from the Canaanites. The holiness of Jerusalem may be yet another thing that they inherited into Israelite culture. Indeed, somebody, probably not Israelite, but we don't know who or when, but this somebody gave the mountain ridge above the Gihon Spring a name. They called that slope Zion. Jerusalem has been conquered, destroyed, and rebuilt so many times, layer upon layer, that it's hard to find the really old stuff. Tombs were found dating back to 3200 BCE and remnants of small houses, but it was around the era of Abdi Hepa, the Canaanite ruler in the 1300s, that Jerusalem really started to grow. The Canaanites built a fortification around the Gihon Spring, a 23-foot thick wall and a tower to guard it. Defenses were beefed up around the area as people began settling along the slope that led from the Gihon Spring water source towards the top of the mountain. At this point, Jerusalem, like the rest of Canaan, was under the control of the Egyptians. But Egyptian power waned during what we call the Bronze Age Collapse, when civilizations were crashing all over the Mediterranean and new people were rising up, like the Israelites. The Bible tells us that Jerusalem came under the control of a people called the Jebusites, we don't really know who they were, we only find them mentioned in the Bible itself and no other historical sources. But whoever they were, they seem to have moved into the Canaanite structures and probably continued building them out, including the military defenses. This is all happening in the area that today is called the City of David. It's on the south side of the old city, 
just outside the famous city walls, a few hundred yards down the slope from the Western Wall. If you know your Jerusalem geography, it's essentially across the street from the Dung Gate. Just watch out for those cab drivers. So Jerusalem was well defended, and perhaps that's why the Hebrew Bible is vague about how King David conquered the city. In fact, the biblical writers gave themselves a little leeway by claiming that David technically only captured the military fortress, which was also called Zion. From this fortress, he was able to control the whole city. Okay, side note. The term Zion gets very confusing very fast. It seems to predate the Israelites, but exactly what spot on earth it refers to has moved around a lot over the last few thousand years. Sometimes Zion means the entire city of Jerusalem, and sometimes just the top part of the city of David. Sometimes Zion refers to the fortress that David captured. Sometimes it refers to what we call today the Temple Mount, where the Dome of the Rock is located, and where, next episode, King Solomon will build his temple. Today, Mount Zion is located about a third of a mile further up the road, where, naturally, the Zion Gate is located. And that was actually a map goof from the Romans. They mislabeled stuff. So what we call Mount Zion today, everyone knows isn't the original Mount Zion, but hey, street signs are expensive, so here we are. So if you ever find yourself confused about what exactly Zion is referring to, don't worry, everyone in history was in the same boat. What we're talking about right now, when we're talking about Jerusalem, is what we today call the City of David. It's the most ancient part of Jerusalem. It's where the city began originally thousands of years ago. As I said, it sits on a slope just outside the old city. So, okay, back to our story. So we have Jerusalem as already an ancient and even sacred Canaanite city by the time King David gets there, right around the year 1000 BCE. And then the Hebrew Bible tells us he begins building things. A large palace, a military stronghold, and the city's defenses. And here's another example of where the Bible, while not necessarily factually correct, is nevertheless revealing historic truths. In ancient times, kings were expected to be builders. If you were in charge, the people expected you to grace their city with new and bigger palaces, temples, walls, and other symbols of status, defense, and presumably employment. And so, says the Bible, David did. The question is, just how much did King David build? In 2005, the extraordinary Israeli archaeologist Eilat Mazar revealed that she had uncovered a large stone structure in the city of David. Eilat Mazar died suddenly a couple weeks ago, but she left behind an exceptional legacy of spectacular and much debated finds. The large stone structure seems to be connected to another huge structure beneath it, known as the stepped stone structure which is a series of stone terraces some 60 feet high. I've seen it on a tour. It's pretty impressive. But here's where things get controversial. Elat Mazar and other archaeologists claim that these two structures are the remains of the huge royal palace that David built, as described in the Bible. Others argue no. Some say it was a Jebusite fortress that came before David. Others say that it's actually several separate buildings that were built close together, and that most of it dates from hundreds of years after David was king. Now, why do we care about archaeologists arguing over a pile of old ruins? Well, because it gets to one of the enduring mysteries of the Hebrew Bible. The idea that the united monarchy, David's Israelite kingdom, was a powerful and mighty state. And yet, 
the evidence we have is such that, well, you can argue either way. Some agree with the Hebrew Bible, but others argue that David's kingdom, while it definitely existed, was just a small state. David himself was just one of many local rulers, not a standout great king. So if the large stone structure was really David's palace, okay, well, first of all, that would be phenomenally cool. I mean, imagine that we could walk around the same building that King David himself lived in. If he was like me, we'll probably find lots of socks and his pens lying around. Probably also car keys. I'm still looking for mine from this morning. But anyway, if this really is his palace, that would suggest that the king had the kind of wealth you'd need to build such a mansion. And that would indicate his kingdom was fairly large and powerful too. A huge boost to the scholars who agree with the Hebrew Bible's take on the size and influence of the Israelite kingdom. Even so, Jerusalem itself was still pretty small around the year 1000. The city of David probably had at most maybe 2,000 people living there. Yet other Israelite cities were growing bigger during the same time period, which would seem to suggest that there was a strong central government organizing things. Still, there was such a lack of hard evidence from so far in the past that many scholars have concluded that the united monarchy wasn't real, that the biblical writers, writing centuries later, made up this glorious past to justify things in their own times. These scholars agree that King David was real, but perhaps he was just a small-time king over a small kingdom of Judah in the south, while the kingdom of Israel in the north remained separate but with its own monarchy. Another possibility is that there really was a united kingdom, but 200 years after King David. It was backdated for political reasons to allow contemporary rulers to associate themselves with the most beloved king. In short, like always, there's what the Bible tells us, and there's what archaeology can sort of tell us, and then there's trying to parse out the differences. We know that the Bible wasn't aiming for facts like archaeology, but instead a narrative that expressed the politics, policies, and religious aspirations of their own day, centuries after King David would have lived. Which leads us to the final piece of how King David made Jerusalem the central city of Judaism. Okay, so you're King David and you successfully took over Jerusalem, you built a palace, you built a military fortress, you made it the capital city of a united Israelite nation, good job. But to really cement Jerusalem's primacy, there's one more thing you really must have besides a new baseball stadium. I'm looking at you, Oakland, let's hustle up. Okay, the one thing you still need in Jerusalem is God, specifically the Israelite God, Yahweh. Remember, Jerusalem is already confirmed as a sacred place because it was the dwelling place of the Canaanite god Shalem. So David doesn't have to make the case that this is a legitimate place for God to be. That's already been the case for millennia. No one's going to think this is weird. It's really just a matter of swapping out the previous divinity for King David's god. So how do you do that? How do you bring Yahweh to Jerusalem? Well, it was actually very easy. The Israelites already had Yahweh's dwelling place. It was the Ark of the Covenant, the gold box that contained the stone tablets of the Ten Commandments inside. On top of the lid were placed two winged creatures called cherubim, and it was right in between their wings that the presence of God was said to dwell here on earth. For hundreds of years, the Israelites have been carrying around the Ark, ever since Moses had it built at the foot of Mount Sinai. 
From city to city, the Israelites had moved it around, and now King David sought to give it a permanent home in Jerusalem. By the way, to learn more about the Ark, check out my Unsolved Jewish Mysteries episode, number 70, about whatever happened to it. The Bible tells us that King David brought the Ark to Jerusalem and placed it right next to the Gihon Spring, the city's water source. In bringing the presence of Yahweh to Jerusalem, David elevated himself. You see, I must be a great and powerful ruler to be able to bring God over here. But this move was also taken as a sign from God. God allowed this move. God was saying, yep, King David is my guy, Jerusalem is my city, and all three of us are now linked together forever. Jerusalem was now without question an Israelite city, and the Ark would stay there for the next 400 years. As we'll see, this was just the first step in centering Israelite and later Jewish religion in Jerusalem, a process that would also take the next several hundred years. So what makes King David so beloved, so great? Under him, the Israelites unified into a single nation, according to the Bible, a large and powerful kingdom that held great influence in the ancient Near East. David established a dynasty that would last 500 years, one of the longest monarchies in human history. He put Jerusalem at the center of Israelite culture and politics, and he brought Yahweh to the little city on the hill, putting Jerusalem on the road to the deep holiness that it still holds today. For someone whom we didn't even know really existed until about 30 years ago, that's not bad. Okay, there is so much I didn't talk about. As usual, add King David to the list of things I'll have to return to someday. I could do a whole season on him, which is not a bad idea. Now, David is considered Judaism's greatest king, but that doesn't mean he is revered as perfect. Far from it. He was a genius but deeply flawed leader. Famously accused of living solely by the sword, he found disfavor with God, who refused to allow David to build for God a temple in Jerusalem. David faced rebellions, most significantly from his son Absalom, who briefly drove his father out of the city before Absalom was assassinated and David returned. And as Leonard Cohen memorably sang, David spotted the naked Bathsheba bathing on a roof, slept with her, impregnated her, and so sent her husband Uriah off to die in battle. Because of this, their child was stricken and quickly died, and David owned up to his guilt. So they had another child, a son, and named him Solomon. David died at the age of 70, and it was written, buried with his fathers in Jerusalem. His tomb has never been found, a subject of another episode of mine, episode 59. We'll pick up the story from there next episode and discuss one of the most important structures in Jewish history, what we call the first temple. Also, babies. As always, jewoutonow.com and my email is jewoutonowpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, everyone. Lehitraot. See you later.